Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with engaging author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you are interested in accessing unique bonus content, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. I offer two levels, Page Turners, which includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as regular bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My second level is Lit Lovers, which includes all of the page turner benefits, as well as my Traveling Galley program, where patrons can read at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members. One of July's selections is the new William Kent Kruger book, The River We Remember. In addition, there are two monthly episodes, fiction-nonfiction pairings and spoiler-filled interviews with three authors. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, Elizabeth Passarella returns to chat about It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway. Elizabeth is the author of the essay collection Good Apple, which was named one of the best books of 2021 by Real Simple Magazine. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Real Simple, and Southern Living. Elizabeth is originally from Memphis and now lives in Manhattan with her husband and three children. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Elizabeth. I am so glad you are back. How are you? I am great, Cindy. Thank you for having me back. It's an honor to be on here a second time. I'm so excited. And I loved It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway. I actually listened to it and you narrate. And so it was so much fun. I just felt like you were right there with me the entire time I was listening to your book. Well, thank you for saying that. You're you're right. I did not narrate. I was I did not get to read the audiobook for my first book, Good Apple. And uh, for various reasons, but I did get to do this one. And I'm a very fast talker. And so it was really hard for me to slow down and be very, very slow when I was doing the audiobook. But people have, have said to me that, um, that it sounds good and they've enjoyed hearing my voice. So that is just a really big relief for me. I thought it sounded absolutely fabulous. And it was just really neat to listen to you tell your story. So I was very glad you got to do that. Yeah, me too. Well, before we dive into my questions, why don't you tell me a little bit about It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. So this is my second essay collection. Um, it is nonfiction essays about my life. You know, my, my first book, I would say, is a lot about my childhood growing up. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and moving to New York and sort of falling in love with the city and falling in love with my husband and some changes in my life that happened as I became a young adult and a, a young woman in New York City. This book um, is similar in form in the sense that I, I write humorous essays. I hope they're humorous. But this one is really a 
narrower window of time, I think, in my life. And so we sold our two-bedroom apartment that our family was living in right around the end, kind of as the pandemic, as New York City was coming out of the pandemic. And we bought a, a, a hoarder apartment, really, a very just abandoned, neglected apartment in our same building. And so this book follows the process of us trying to buy this apartment from our elderly neighbor. She's Lois. I call her Lois in the book. And she did not live there at the time. She lived elsewhere in New York City. It was her, her husband's apartment and he had passed away. And she was not looking to sell it. It wasn't on the market. So this book kind of, there are several chapters in this book that follow our getting in touch with Lois and getting to know her and the very up and down roller coaster process of buying this apartment from her. And woven throughout the book are other essays just about the concept of, of home. We really wanted to stay in this building with this community in New York City that we had lived in for a long time and really adored what feels like home, the kinds of things that uh, make us feel at home, what draws us to certain places. And so I talk a little bit about some things in, from my childhood in the South. I talk about some possessions that felt very homey to me that I had to get rid of. The title essay is about a couch that was my dad's and he had passed away and I had to get rid of that. So the, the thread throughout the book is buying this apartment and staying in our building. But the arc of the book, I guess, is really about what feels like home, moving forward from change and moving through change and moving on from loss and different things and kind of staying rooted in where you are. So so yeah, it is, I hope, funny and I hope heartwarming. People have told me they've cried at the end, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's really what the book is about. It's very funny, but you also touch on some really important themes, which you just mentioned. And in addition to everything you mentioned, family and trying to deal with your in-laws or when something happens with like a relative who's sick. So I just felt that a lot of it really resonated with me. And it's most definitely funny. I laughed a lot. Thank you. Well, sure. And I, I say all the time that I, I love writing nonfiction. I love writing these essays. I love writing kind of that memoir adjacent genre. And I, at the same time, have not gone through a huge life transformation or a really devastating illness or accident or anything that I've had to just overcome in my life that feels dramatic. I think that the things that I write about, I write about my father's death. I write about some health issues that my husband had that were really scary. I do write about my relationship with my mother-in-law. But all of these things can be little moments of suffering or little challenges to overcome in our lives. And I just feel like those things are just as valid and important to talk about and so many things that we don't talk about, but everyone can relate to. So those little joys, little griefs, little mountains and molehills that we have to get over in life are really, to me, the stuff of our everyday lives. And so I, I really feel, I guess, honored to be able to write about my life, which is not that special, but have people read it and resonate with it. Well, I think exactly what you just said is correct. Everybody's dealing with these types of things, maybe not the exact thing, but something similar. And it's so nice to read that we're not alone. Like some of the things you say, I often was bookmarking it and thinking, oh, I feel so much better that someone else has dealt with this and has the same type of responses that I do. And also maybe learn different ways. Like you have a great two pages about ideas about dealing with your in-laws and they are very valid and helpful. My in-laws are no longer around, but very valid and helpful instructions for people that are new to that and trying to deal with it, you know, some good life lessons. Well, and I do think that someone asked me at a book event uh, when I was on book tour, when this book came out, 
and said, do you ever kind of have like a vulnerability hangover or do you ever regret or do you read back and think, oh gosh, I can't believe I said that. And I answered really quickly and my answer is no, I just don't. And part of that is just my personality. Not everybody is wired that way. I really, really love sharing my life. I very rarely feel ashamed or embarrassed. I just think that's just kind of how I'm wired. It's my personality to be, be a sharer and it, it really does not bother me. But yes, I also think that I'm, I'm 46. I am firmly middle-aged and I could not have written a lot of these chapters when I was 26. I would have loved to. I'd have loved to publish a book when I was 26, but I wouldn't have been able to write that mother-in-law chapter. And I'm sure that I will have a lot more wisdom about raising children and about marriage in another 20 years, I hope. But my desire in writing that is that someone might pick it up who is newly married and might learn some of those lessons that it took me a long time to learn. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. So I like sharing that. I am so happy to share my mistakes and my missteps in a humorous way so that someone who gets to this stage of life might learn those lessons a little bit quicker than I did. Well, and I think the other component to that is getting a book out into the world takes quite some time. So you wrote that essay about your mother-in-law or the several essays that involve your mother-in-law a while ago and went through a long editing process and evaluation process. So you had time to decide, do I want to include this or not? And if you had decided in the end, I don't, there would have been time to pull it. Yes, I assume so. I would have had to come up with something else though, Cindy. That's hard to fill. That's true too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always so curious on essay collections, how you order them. Like, did you write them in the order they are included in the book? Do you write them as you think about them and then try to decide where they're going to fit in? How did that work for you? So it was really different this time around than it was in my first book. I had that one really outlined and in the order that I thought it was going to go in from the beginning. And this one, I just started writing and I wasn't sure where it was going. Because when I started writing this book, um, we were not close to, to buying the apartment. We had just started talking and calling Lois and, and sort of entering into this relationship with her really tentatively. So I didn't know where this book was going to go. So I wrote those chapters about Lois and about the apartment. I wrote them very much in real time, but then I had to figure out how to space them apart and put other things in between. So this book was really just a big jumble. And then at the end, we sort of, I, with my editor and my agent, who also is a wonderful writer and reads everything uh, very early on, helped me pace it out and decide what went where. And I never really look at things chronologically, to be honest. Good Apple was a little more chronological. With this one, it was more, more a feeling. I, I think that the more tender chapters, the chapters where I was a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more angry. In one chapter, I was a little bit angry about the way New Yorkers had reacted during the pandemic and that were a little maybe darker, I guess, came towards the end. I thought that we sort of built to an emotional climax in a sense towards the end. But um, the last chapter I wrote in this book, and I wrote it many, many times, was the introduction, which is really funny because you would think that would be the first thing that you would write is you'd write the introduction and tell everybody what this book's going to be about and then go into it. In, in this book, it's, a, it's the prologue. I call it the prologue. But I really wrote that last because I wanted so desperately to just set this book up well And I wanted to strike the right tone at the beginning. And I wanted to tell a funny story. And I wanted to to tell a story that would sort of wrap everything up, which is very hard to do. But I think I wrote that introduction about 10 or 11 times before I really hit on something that I felt like spoke to the rest of the book and and set things up well and, and was succinct and smart and funny, but 
that was the last thing I wrote, which is sort of rare, I think. But I, I just, I waited till the end to see how everything turned out. And then I went back and wrote the beginning. I actually think that makes sense on the introduction because it's hard to write an introduction when you don't have the entire book there because you don't really know what you're wrapping up and you don't know the breadth of it. I think that's true. And I, the other thing that was really funny about the introduction is I had a little story that I told at the beginning and it was comparing, talking about dreams and comparing children to dreams. I won't bore you with the entire long story, but then another writer, another a humor writer and essay writer that I love and admire and adore came out with a new book and she told the, she, she made the exact same connection and told the exact same story and metaphor in an essay in her newest book. And I had just hit upon this intro and I felt really good about it. And then I read this other writer's book and I thought, well, that's great. And so I, I sent it to my editor and I said, I have to scrap this, don't I? And she said, yep. So I had to start over again. So that sometimes things like that just happen where you think you've got such an original idea and then someone smarter and more clever than you are ends up using it. So that happens too. That does happen too. And that reminds me, I just recently interviewed Annabelle Monahan, and somebody was asking her about her title. And it was originally going to be Meet Me at the Beach. And then Carly Fortune's book, Meet Me at the Lake, came out. And so she said, we had to change the title. I couldn't believe it. She's like, I'm still a little bitter. She was laughing. She wasn't really bitter. But she's like, I just loved that title. And then it couldn't work anymore. I know. Well, the writer who wrote this, you know, connection, this thing about dreams that I had was Jesse Klein, who wrote uh, You'll Grow Out of It. And then she wrote, you know, her second book was I'll Show Myself Out. And I love her writing. I mean, if I'm going to be one-upped by somebody, it's fine that it's her. I absolutely adore her books and her writing. But it was very funny that I had just finished this new introduction. I was feeling so great about it and I had to kill it. You're like, darn it. And I loved her first book. I saw she had a new collection come out, but I haven't read it yet. So you're reminding me that I need to. And then the second thing you mentioned was your agent, which I always am so happy about the book world and how connected it is. And I interviewed you last time. And then I interviewed Kristen, your agent, for my behind the scenes series. And that's when I connected up that you guys work together. So I just love that, all the little connections that everybody has. I know. Yeah. Kristen is, um, she is my agent, Kristen Van Ogtrop, and she's also a writer. She had a, you know, a book, um, did I say that out loud that came out right around the same, same time Good Apple came out, which was super fun. We actually did a, an event together, like a Zoom sort of book talk together about both of our books. So I love her writing. I loved her writing for many, many, many years before she was ever my agent. So I feel really lucky that I have a wonderful editor, but also a wonderful agent whose opinion, editorial opinion, I, I value so much. And she was delightful to interview. She is delightful, yeah. So Lois and the Apartment, what <laughs> a crazy story. I am sure when you first began, you had no idea what that was going to be like. I mean, who could? Oh, no, we, we absolutely could not have ever imagined. And I think, you know, you hear those stories all the time. And it's in movies. I feel like it's a movie trope. It's a book trope that we loved this house. We fell in love with the house. And so we wrote the owners a letter and we left it in the mailbox about our love for the house. And we got to buy it over all the other high bidders because of the wonderful story we told. And you always think, oh, that doesn't really happen or, oh, that's really cheesy. And really, that is kind of exactly what happened. We did. We, my husband reached out to her and called her and just said, if you would ever consider selling, would you please call us first? We really want to stay in our building. But the three bedrooms, the larger apartments in our building, most of them are on really high, higher floors and they overlook the park. They have beautiful park views. And so that drives up the price. You pay a lot more for a park view. And we just couldn't afford them. And this apartment was sort of a weird layout. It was not the typical three-bedroom layout. 
And of course, it was in terrible, terrible shape. So we thought maybe we can afford this. And after my husband talked to Lois, I did write her a letter. I thought, listen, if I am a writer and this opportunity lies in front of me, I cannot not write this woman a letter about how much my it would mean to my family to be able to stay in this building. So that is what I did. I wrote her a letter and that's what started it off. And then we had many, many phone conversations as I write about the book. Many, many. Yes. <laughs> it's just truly crazy to think about. And I was following your story, not the lowest part of the story, but the hoarding part of the story on Instagram, because you would from time to time post a video, show everything, all the telephones, all the medical equipment, all of the everything else that was piled all around the apartment. Yes. People are confused sometimes when we say medical equipment. And I have to, if, if anybody does not know the story or has not followed me on Instagram and seen some of the photos, um, the man who owned it was a doctor and Lois's late husband. He was a doctor. And he used this apartment sort of as an office. He did not remodel it into cubicles and rooms. He didn't change the layout. It still looked like a a family apartment. But he did see patients there occasionally. And so he hoarded, among other things, but medical equipment. So there were these machines that almost looked like electric shock therapy machines. They were these old 1950s kind of mid-century uh, machinery, multiple, 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 huge, big, you know, kind of rolling machines. There were boxes and boxes of syringes. There were, I mean, we still have, I love this, Cindy, we have boxes of Band-Aids. There were just boxes upon boxes. And of course, each big box held about a hundred little boxes of Band-Aids. Now you have had, I know your children are older, but I'm sure you can remember when your children were little, they will put Band-Aids on anything. They're like stickers. And I always used to get so frustrated buying boxes of Band-Aids only to have them disappear. Well, now we have Band-Aids coming out of our ears for the next century. So we give Band-Aids away to everyone who comes to visit. But yes, that is why there was medical equipment in the apartment was because he was a doctor. And so a lot of the closets and rooms were filled with bizarre old medical equipment. You're like, take these Band-Aids and cover every body part you want because my kids would love to just put them all up their leg or all up their arm. And you're like, it doesn't matter. We can use all of these Band-Aids. All the Band-Aids, yep. Do you have a favorite essay in the collection, Elizabeth? Ooh, gosh. You know, I should have the book right in front of me. I, I should tell people we are in the middle of moving. We've kind of moved out of a rental apartment. We're trying to move into our new apartment. So everything I own, including all of my copies of my own book, are in storage or in my sister-in-law's apartment right now. But I would say the chapter sort of towards the end called Staying Put, where I talk about coming through the pandemic in New York, I really love. And I I was a little hesitant to write about the pandemic because of course, when we were going through it, I started writing this book in 2021 when we were still really in the thick of it, especially in New York. And you know, none of us, I think people are still a little bit unsure of how we feel about pandemic writing, books set in the pandemic or things that mention the pandemic. Everyone has a different reaction to that. And I worried that writing about New York City during the pandemic not knowing how everyone was going to feel or even what's, where we were going to be with the pandemic a year later was really unsettling and really hard. And I, did, I, was, I was just really sort of confused about what to do. And I ended up writing really, I think, honestly, and kind of in a raw way about how frustrated I was when the pandemic hit and so many people just fled New York City because it wasn't serving them in a sense. And all of my feelings and my love for New York City and I felt like a mama bear. I talk about this in, in the chapter where it was almost like someone had talked smack about my child and I wanted to protect her. That's how I felt. I felt really protective of the city. 
And so I, I really do love that chapter because I think people are curious about what it was like in the thick of the pandemic in New York. And also because I, I did one of my favorite things, which was really admit what a jerk I was. Because I was. I was kind of a jerk to some of the people who'd moved away. Maybe it was behind closed doors and only to my husband's ears, but I was still a jerk. So it was admitting that, which I think is always a good thing for writers to do. And also just coming away with feeling like my love for New York City went a little bit deeper and had a little bit more of a layer to it because we had kind of gone through this difficult time together. So I really do love that chapter. I thought it was also really interesting because another thing you address in that chapter is how when you were speaking to people during your Good Apple tour and they would ask how it is in New York City, you kind of glossed over some of it. And so you're like, I apologize to everybody because it wasn't really as good as I made it sound, but it wasn't good for anybody anywhere. But you were wanting people to not hate on New York City at the time and how it was hard to be urban and you know have this kind of pandemic life in an urban area like that. And so I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, it felt like people blamed New York for being New York. Well, of course, New York was going to be where it was the worst. Look at the guy, how you guys live on top of each other like this and riding the subway. What did you think was going to happen? And so I was really cheery and really upbeat and really overly optimistic about how things were. And then secretly behind closed doors, I, my, I was really falling apart. I, I, everyone was. I mean, we all remember that time. But yeah, it was, it was nice to go back and reflect on that time and apologize and just say I was really, really upbeat and painted a really rosy picture. And that wasn't exactly what was happening. But I think that is so natural. And when you love a place like you love New York City, or I love New York City, you want everyone to have a good opinion of it. So I think that's totally valid. And I'm sure people across the country were doing that about wherever they were. I hope so. I mean, I think we've all learned a lot of lessons and we will continue to do so as we kind of march forward out of this thing. But yeah. Absolutely. Well, Elizabeth, I'd love to talk a little bit about you getting to narrate the audiobook because I was thrilled to pieces that you were narrating it. But how did that happen? It was thrilling for me too. And we, um, when, when Good Apple came out, there were a couple of things happening. Number one, it was the beginning of the pandemic or the first year of the pandemic. And so recording studios and things like that in New York were closed. So there wasn't logistically much of an opportunity. But also, my publisher was really honest with me and just said, listen, if you do not have a voice that's either recognizable because you're a celebrity, you know, you're Matthew McConaughey reading your own book, or you're a podcaster, someone like Laura Tremaine, for example, who people recognize her voice, she has a popular podcast, and so reading her own book makes perfect sense. They said it can really backfire if, you, if, if readers can sometimes be turned off by your voice if you don't do a great job. And I think they're absolutely right. I don't listen to a ton of audiobooks, but I completely understand how that happens. And so because of the logistical challenges and that, we had a professional narrator read Good Apple. I did get to pick who it was. They gave me several choices. I wanted someone with a Southern accent because I'm from Memphis, but I certainly do not have a heavy Southern accent or much of a twang. So I was really picky about that. But the person who did it did a beautiful job and, and I loved how it turned out. But I did still secretly really want to read my own book. And I think with fiction, obviously, that's not the case. But with nonfiction, most people, I would say the majority of, of essay and memoir writers do read their own work. And this book felt so personal and was written at such a difficult and personal time in my life. And I really did want to want to read it. And so they just said, yes, I did have to turn in a little clip of me reading um, you know, a few pages just for them to get an idea. But they said yes. And we booked a studio in the city. It was, like I said at the beginning, I listened to a lot of different clips from different writers reading their own work just to get a sense of how people sounded. And what I kept telling myself over and over again was, oh my gosh, these people are talking so 
slowly. (laughs) And it was really hard for me to think about that because listen, everybody listening to this podcast is probably listening to it at 1.5. Everyone does that. I do that. People listen to it at, at two times the speed. So I knew that in addition to the fact that I'm a fast talker anyway, anyway, people were also going to be listening at a, a higher speed. So I really worked so hard to talk slowly. And that was really difficult for me. But I enjoyed the book narration so much. I think other writers had told me it was really exhausting and really hard. And I did not find it hard and exhausting. I found it completely delightful. I was in a tiny soundproof booth with this wonderful sound engineer, this young man outside who I'm sure knows more about my life and my like, you know, I don't even know, my marriage, all the different things than he ever wanted to. But I really enjoyed it. And what I loved most about it was I kind of fell in love with my own book again, which by the time you get to reading the audiobook, it's been a while. You've probably finished the editing. You're in that sort of dead zone where you're starting to rev up the marketing, but it's not pub day yet. And so I hadn't read it in a long time. And getting to read through it very slowly and getting to have those emotions all over again helped me fall back in love with it at just the right time, right before I had to set out on the road and kind of promote it. So I love that aspect of it too. When you're mentioning having to talk slow, I'm trying to remember what speed I listened to the audiobook at. I'm going to have to try to go back and look and see if it saves it by audiobook. And I don't listen to that many audiobooks, so it probably will be there. But I'm like, I wonder how much I sped her up because you do talk fast, as do I. So I'm curious about that now. And here's one thing that I loved. I will give you a little behind the scenes look at audio narration, which I, maybe everybody knows this, but I did not. There were several uh, famous names, either people or places or something that I had written. But as you're writing, you're not always saying those words out loud, even in, in real life or in your head. And for example, I talk in the chapter where I talk about working at different magazines, I talk about working at Vogue, and I mention that Ruth, and see, I'm not, and right now my mind's going to go blank and I'm going to think, oh, is it Reichel or Reichel? I think it's Reichel. I think it's Reichel too. But I think in my mind, I had always said Reichel when I was thinking of her name. And so as I got to that part in the, as I'm reading off of the iPad in the sound booth, I thought, oh no, I don't want to say this wrong. And so I sort of alert the sound engineer and he goes, oh, hold on one second. And he immediately through the headphones that I've already got on starts playing me clip after clip of either her saying her own name, like at a, on a podcast, or uh, somebody introducing her at the 92nd Street Y, and they say, welcome, Ruth Reichel. And so you get these actual real-time recordings of someone saying that person's name correctly so that you have the pronunciation correct. And we did that several times for several different things in the book. And I thought that was so cool, and I loved it. So that was really helpful. That is so cool. And the only reason I know how to pronounce her name is because I thought it was Ruth Reichel as well, but I've listened to a couple of her books on audiobook, and that's when they said Ruth Reichel. And the first time I was like, I had no idea that's how you pronounce it because you don't ever hear it, you know? Yep. Well, that's very cool, though, that you had that right at your fingertips. Yeah, it was. So I do have to say I have a slight different opinion on your beach conversation in your book. (laughs) And I had to bring it up. You and many other people, Cindy. You and many other people. You indicate that you believe that the Atlantic Coast beaches are better than the Gulf Coast beaches. And as one who has spent a lot of time on both of them, I have to completely disagree. I know. We Listen, I love to disagree. It is all good. I am not going to hang up on you. (laughs) Well, I grew up, I say lovingly, I grew up going to Destin, going to the Gulf Coast beaches. So I have so much fond 
just love and devotion to those beaches. And I will go back with my kids and visit them. I really will. I do love them in their own way. I think that, but, I, but yes, I do mention in this book, it's called the, the Chapter of Questionable Opinions, that I have grown to love kind of the Atlantic coast beaches a little bit more. But I will say the reason is, I think it's more about the fact that when I was in college and I went to college in North Carolina, I would frequently go to Atlantic Beach or Wrightsville Beach with my roommates who were all from there. And I was really snooty about those beaches because I was used to the beautiful white sugar sands of the Gulf Coast and the beautiful clear blue water. And the Atlantic Coast beaches are different. They are a little bit rougher and a little bit more brown. And so I think what I am trying to say in that chapter too was how my sister moved to South Carolina shortly after getting married. And she has lived in the Charleston area for many, many, many years. So we spend a lot of time down there. And it really in telling that story is more about how our opinions can change and how we can grow to love something and have it feel kind of like home, whereas we always thought we were going to prefer one thing over another and how as we grow and mature, we can get over ourselves a little bit and how I really do, I do, I prefer the like wildness and the wide, wide, wide sort of, you know, dunes and the beaches of, of Isle of Palms and Sullivan's Island and Kiowa and all those beautiful beaches on, on the East Coast. But it doesn't mean I don't like the beaches of the Gulf Coast. I think if you gave me a choice, I would choose Atlantic Coast beaches. But I understand why people love 30A. Although it wasn't really 30A when I was growing up. It's become very, very popular now. So I think the crowds and the expense was not really at the scene when I was growing up. It was a little more, I don't know, cheesy and cheap and easygoing. No, I think you're right. And they serve different purposes. So when I've been on the East Coast, I think walking on those beaches is so much nicer because the sand is so much darker and packed down and everything. So it's a lot simpler to exercise or to walk up and down the Atlantic beaches. But the Gulf Coast beaches are a thousand times prettier, you know, getting in the water and you can see all of your body and the beaches are so pretty. It's just a different vibe. It is. And, and they're both good for different purposes. So I think it really just depends on what you're looking for. And of course, all of our love for these different places is so tied up in our childhood memories, uh, the, the adventures we've had there, the things we've done there. It's never just about purely the aesthetics or the ease or the price or whatever it is. It's always tied up in some sort of emotional, familial tie that we have to a place. So of course, we can never be completely objective. I agree with that completely because you do have memories from these places that you just love and you're like, well, I can't beat that. Right, right. But I just had to mention it. <laughs> you are not the first one and you will not be the last, I'm sure. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the thing about open kitchens. I get a lot of pushback about that too. I say I don't like open kitchens and I don't like kitchen islands and everyone thinks I'm crazy. Well, I don't like open kitchens either. So actually I was right there with you, but I do have an island and I do like that. So I'm kind of in the middle there, but I love the kitchen that is set off from the rest of the house for the very same reason you do. Then I don't have to worry about looking at the dishes or looking at the stuff piled up or it's just in the other room and it's quieter, all of it. I, I agree with you completely on that. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what books you have read recently that you recommend. Sure. Um, well, I, like everyone else in the country, read Hello Beautiful this month, and I did love that very much. But I won't talk about that because I'm sure a lot of other people have talked about that book. But, you know, I, I feel like if anybody has clicked on this podcast because they in any way enjoy my writing or my books... I always love to recommend other essay writers, other nonfiction writers, because that's really what I love to read the most, to be completely honest with you. And so um, I'm going to re recommend two different books and writers who, um, if you like my writing or you like funny essay collections, 
you will enjoy these books. I think they are similar, except for these writers are both more talented and better than I am. So you will probably enjoy them even more. But the first book is actually not coming out until 2024, but I'll only recommend it because this writer has another book that's already out that you can read. So I had an advanced copy of this book um, because I know the writer and her name is Shannon Reed. And the book is called Why We Read. And it is a book about reading. Shannon is a humorist. She writes for McSweeney's. She writes for The New Yorker. But she's also a professor of contemporary literature at Pitt. And she, I think that so many books or articles or even what we're doing right now where tell me what you've been reading lately that, that talk about kind of the reading life. I think I always get really nervous about because there are classics that I haven't read that I feel sort of ashamed about, or there's books that I like or don't like that everyone loves and I didn't like it. And I feel um, awkward about talking about that. And Shannon just talks about all the different ways that we read and why we read because we're assigned it, because it brings us joy, because it makes us cry, because it opens our eyes to a different worldview. And she approaches it in such a graceful and forgiving way in the sense that you're fully forgiven for not having read this classic or this classic. She just gives readers a lot of permission to love what they love. And she's also very, very funny. All of the stories, all the chapters in this book obviously deal with certain titles and books that she's read, but they're wrapped up in her own stories of life, her stories from her childhood, stories from her teaching days, and they are just really tender. And the stories she tells about her life are so moving and so funny. And it also makes you just fall in love with, with books and remembering books that you've read from high school that you've forgotten how much you loved. So it's just a wonderful book. And it doesn't come out until next year. But while you are waiting for that book, which is called Why We Read, you can read Why Did I Get a B, which is her other memoir about her teaching days. She started teaching as a preschool teacher in her father's Lutheran church. And she went on to teach in some different schools, public and private in New York City. And it is also just a wonderful showcase of Shannon's voice, um, her, her wit and her humor and her brilliance. And um, she tells all these stories about her students and her teaching days. And so it's called, Why Did I Get a B? I think it's like Confessions from the Teacher's Lounge or something is the, is the subtitle. But that is a book by Shannon Reed. And I just really like her writing. And I feel like not enough people know about her. So that's one. And the other book that I read in the past month, I guess, is How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. Harrison was born in Memphis, but grew up in Mississippi. He's a Southern writer, another very, very funny writer. Obviously, that's very important to me, humor. But this is a crazy book. It's his third memoir. And this book follows the story of um, his wife's affair. His wife cheated on him, and it lasted several years. And it is the story of kind of their marriage falling apart and coming back together. It's just an astonishing book in the sense that I don't think I know a writer, a memoirist who has really been quite as raw and honest and unbelievably vulnerable in that as he has in this book. And he talks about, obviously, his own failures and his own just mistakes that he made that kind of led to the situation. It reads a little bit like a thriller. I know that sounds crazy, but there is a climax in this book where you really think, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? And I know because I follow Harrison on Instagram that his, he is still married to this woman. And yet you, you think that's not going to happen, that everything's still going to fall apart. And so it is suspenseful. It is funny. It's heartbreaking. It is a beautiful picture of kind of their finding their way back to their faith and kind of re regrouping in terms of their church community and their 
faith community and and building one that was they were able to be fully broken and kind of messed up in and so it's a beautiful story of of a really broken and and wonderful faith community it's just a really different type of book so if you are looking for something that is a little bit gut wrenching and also sort of suspenseful and also very very funny I would highly recommend How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. All of his books are great. I'm not familiar with either one of them, Shannon Reed or Harrison Scott Key. So thank you. And every time I hear Harrison Scott Key, I assume there's no relation to Francis Scott Key. There is no relation. And he talks about that. So this his first book was called The World's Largest Man. That was a memoir about his dad growing up in Mississippi. His second book, Congratulations, Who Are You Again? I loved even more than the first. It's a memoir about writing his first book. And he talks about kind of going on book tour and he took his mother on book tour, which I took my mother on book tour. So I really enjoyed reading about him taking his mother on book tour. He's just very, he's, he's very funny. He's very self-deprecating as many humor writers are, but he writes about the South with a lot of love and warmth. And, um, but this book is just really kind of astonishing. You sort of can't believe he wrote it and yet he did. So I think it's, it's a real gift to a lot of people who have been married and struggled at different times. And his wife. That has to be interesting to have your story like that out there. Obviously, I'm sure they worked through all of that. She wrote the last chapter. She did? Yes. So that is fascinating. She kind of tells her side of things at the end. It's just, yes, it's astonishing. That's what I'm saying. It's amazing that they wrote this book. So it's great. Okay. Well, I'm adding all of their books to my list as well as Jesse Klein's new one. So thank you. Yes, for sure. Well, Elizabeth, as always, it is absolutely delightful to chat with you. And I'm so glad you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be with you, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, We explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show, or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Science, 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 science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? <laughs> Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. 
Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.